we were asking was, how do we understand and relate to Jesus as our healer? Do we understand Jesus as our healer? And in that, how do we understand that? How do we relate to him? How do we approach Jesus as our healer? And the man with leprosy demonstrated four things for us. He was entirely focused on Christ. It wasn't about the circumstances. It wasn't about what was going on around him. It wasn't about the other people. This man was entirely focused on Jesus Christ. And when he came to Jesus, he came so properly submitted in reverence. That was the second thing we looked at. Matthew and Mark's account said he was kneeling before Christ. Luke's account said he was on his face before Jesus. Knowing Jesus as healer is about knowing him submitted in proper reverence to Jesus. And then the second two points we looked at really go hand in hand. That this man with leprosy demonstrated a proper understanding of the power of Jesus Christ. His statement that he said was, if you will, you can heal me. It was a definitive statement. He knew and recognized and affirmed and acknowledged the power of Jesus Christ. If you will, you can heal me. And then the final piece we looked at from the man with leprosy was that he also demonstrated a proper understanding of the authority of Jesus Christ. He said, if you will. He put Jesus first. And I talked about how in my own life, sadly, I've gotten it wrong at points. I've, I've phrased it the other way around, right? I've said, God, if, if you can, will you? And this man went before Jesus and said, no, if you will, you can. He knew that the decision was Jesus's, that it was about Jesus's authority. And so we looked at these four points and we asked, is this how we relate to and understand Jesus' healer? So keep those four points, the entirely focused on Jesus, properly submitted to Jesus, understanding Jesus' power, understanding that the authority belongs to Jesus, as we look at this story in Luke 5, 17 through 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, he being Jesus, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. What an absolutely incredible story where we get to see Jesus Christ, our healer, and what we see in this story, building on what we saw last week, is that God offers restoration. The question is, how do we respond to the restoration that God offers? We've talked about this before, that God is a God who pursues restoration, who desires restoration. Primarily between He and us, and our relationship with Him. But then also it is His heart for restoration for in our own relationships with one another. 
and in our lives. And so this morning, as we continue to look at Jesus Christ, our healer, I want us to build on the question last week. Last week, the question was, how do we understand and relate to Jesus as our healer? And now the question is, how do we respond? And so to start, as we look at these details, I've said this numerous times, there are no inconsequential details in the Bible. I love looking at all the little parts of it. Everything is there for a reason. So I want to start with the setting because I want us to have an, a picture of where this is happening and what's going on. And what do we see in Luke? Jesus was teaching, but now he's teaching. And what's it say? It says, Pharisees and teachers of the law were there, coming from every village. And it goes on to list all the regions that these people had traveled to to hear Jesus. So this isn't just a small, isolated crowd. This is, this is a big event. These Pharisees, and it's not just the common people who are traveling. It's the Pharisees, it's the teachers, it's the rulers who are intentionally coming out to sit and listen and say, okay, this Jesus person, his following is growing. People are starting to talk about him. This is gaining more and more traction, more and more momentum. We need to look into this. We need to follow up on this. So they're coming from, I mean, it says as far away as Jerusalem, the leaders have come to listen to Jesus. And it says they're gathered in a house. And to understand a little bit more about this setting, so most of the homes back then, they're not like today, right, with lots and lots of rooms, multiple stories. We're looking at smaller structures. But the fact that all of these Pharisees and leaders were there and that they felt comfortable, remember, the Pharisees struggled with thinking they were better than the average person. And so the fact that the Pharisees were so willing to enter into this person's home I think it's fair to infer that this was someone of significance in the community. This may even have been another leader in that community, but this is a home that the Pharisees were willing to enter into, so it might have been a little bit bigger than the average home. We know it was a little bit nicer than the average home because the Bible includes the detail that the roof was tile, which wouldn't have been uncommon, but it wouldn't have been the most common roofing material. And so we know the home was a little bit nicer than most, it was maybe a little bit bigger than most, so this might have been someone with authority within this own community where the other leaders have now gathered to hear Jesus present. And then the other part to know about homes in this area and in this time period is that almost every home had a courtyard outside of it. It's, they varied in size, but most homes would have had an exterior, you know, what we might call like a patio or something. But they would have had a courtyard that led into the home. This would have been open air, but it would have had walls around it. And so the picture I have as I read these verses and we look at crowded with the leaders and a tile roof is you've got the most important people are inside the house. But then the Bible says that the crowd was so packed in that these guys couldn't get in. And so I see the crowd spilling out from the interior of the home, jammed into the courtyard, right? Think the doors of Walmart on Black Friday before they open where it's just pressed up in there and it is so tightly packed with people who have come to see, okay, who is this Jesus? Who is this Messiah? And so that's our setting. And who arrives to this home? Who arrives to this event, this conversation, if you will? These men bringing their paralyzed friend. And in these men, we see that first point from the leper, the necessity of being entirely focused on Jesus Christ. These men, their only thought is to bring their friend to Jesus. Because what do we know? That the man was paralyzed. So they're looking at it as he can't get to Jesus on his own as Jesus travels. So they have taken it upon themselves. We will bring our friend to Jesus. 
And what's interesting is the Bible doesn't say whether or not they were bringing him for healing or just to listen to Jesus' teaching. It just says they wanted to bring him and lay him before Jesus. So these men have looked at their paralyzed friend and they have said, we need to bring him to Jesus. He can't do it on his own. We are going to bring him to the Messiah, to bring him to the Christ. And they get to this house and it is packed and they can't get in. And are they deterred? No, because their focus is entirely on Jesus. It's not on the obstacles in front of them. It's not on the social norms or respects. They look at this crowd in front of them and they say, okay, well, we're going to overcome this. We're going to the roof. And they start demolishing this person's private property. I mean, that's a bold move. That's not the move of someone who's timid. That's not the move of someone who's, you know, kind of wishy-washy about, hey, you know, man, we tried to bring you to Jesus, but the crowds are here, so I guess we're out of luck. No, they go up onto the roof. I mean, think about it. If I was talking right now and you heard a noise on the roof, and all of a sudden a crack opened up and a hand came punching through, and you watch that hand start to enlarge the roof, right? Don't you think that we'd send somebody to be like, uh, hey, do we have a trustee or an elder who can go see why someone's doing demo on our, our place? So I have to imagine that the owner of the house or somebody was like, uh, can, can we help you? Like, you're, you're tearing apart my roof. And these guys persist because not only do they open a roof through the tile, they open a, a hole large enough to lower a person through. So they are persistent in this. They are bold in this. Because this matters to them. Why? Because they are entirely focused on bringing their friend to Jesus. And I wonder if we have that same focus in our lives today. This reminds me, these men that we see in this passage, these unnamed, unknown men who disappear from history after these few short verses. It reminds me of what we see from the believers in Acts. This is Acts chapter 4, and we won't go into all of chapter 4 because this is the chapter I'm going to ask you all to read this week. But the background of Acts chapter 4 is a man has just been healed. And Peter and John are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of the Messiah, following this man who has been healed. And the leaders, the rulers, they come to Peter and John and they imprison them and they threaten them and they bring them before the court and they say, you need to stop. You've got to stop preaching about Jesus. And how do Peter and John reply? They reply with one of my favorite statements. We cannot help but speak to what we have seen and heard. The rest is up to you. You decide what you're going to do with it, but we're going to speak about Jesus. And it has, chapter 4 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Chapter 4, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were common, uneducated men, they were astonished. And they realized that these men had been with Jesus. And that's the point of being common men. I hope I am such a common person. Because when God does uncommon things through common people, the results have to point to Him. And so you have Peter and John in this situation, and they come out of being threatened by the rulers. And what's their response? They have just been physically threatened if they continue to preach the gospel. If they continue to focus entirely on Jesus, they're in danger. They're running a risk. How do they respond? This is Acts 4, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, listen to this prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants safety and protection and political freedom. Is that what anybody's verse says? No, that's not what mine says either. Good, we're on the same page. They said, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. These were uncommon men in their commonality. They were common, uneducated men, but what set them apart is that they were entirely focused on Jesus Christ. The men who brought their, faith, their friend to Jesus were entirely focused on Jesus Christ. And when, when people, when common, uneducated, no-name people are entirely focused on Jesus Christ, God gets the glory. And it's what happened in Acts. And as we specifically look at this idea of relating to Jesus as healer, remember, we started with the man with leprosy who was healed by Jesus. We're looking at a paralyzed man who was healed by Jesus. This story in Acts immediately follows a man who was healed by Jesus. So as we're looking at this idea of Jesus as healer, how do we relate to him? How do we understand him? We see similar veins even in this story in Acts. Because what do we learn from the believers about their role in this? What do the believers pray for? They don't pray, God, let us stretch out our hand and do signs and wonders. God, let us do miracles. God, let us heal. They say, no. God, grant to your servants that we will speak your word with boldness. That is the role and the responsibility of the believer. And then what do they reveal about God's role and God's authority and responsibility? What do they declare? They say, Lord, grant to your servants that we will speak your word with boldness. You stretch out your hand and heal. You do the signs and wonders in the name of Jesus Christ. They demonstrate what we looked at with the leper last week. That the authority and the power is God's and God's alone. Grant to your servants that we will declare your name with boldness. Grant to your servants that we will preach the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That we will preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. That we will preach the good news. You do the healing. You do what only you can do. The power, the authority belongs to you. Our responsibility is to declare that Jesus is Lord. Church, is that your prayer today? Is that the prayer of our ministries today? Grant us boldness to declare that Jesus is Lord. That's our responsibility, God. We understand that the rest is up to you. That we need you to move as only you can move. We need you to do what only you can do. The men in the story in Luke got it. The disciples gathered together. The believers huddled together praying, lifting their voices to heaven. They got it. I want us to be a church that gets it. And we see 
what happens when people are entirely focused on Jesus Christ as Lord, as Je on Jesus Christ as healer. And the second thing we see, and we actually see a negative example of this. It's okay, we're going to use a negative example. We looked at the man with leprosy and how he was properly submitted in reverence to Jesus. And now in this story in Luke, tragically, we see the opposite. We see Pharisees and rulers and leaders who, by all external purposes, seem to get it. Right? They've traveled. They've gone out of their way. They've rearranged their schedules. They canceled that day trip. They rearranged the errands. You know, I got to go. Okay, nope, I'll do grocery shopping tomorrow. I got to go hear Jesus. Ah, they get it. Good, good. They're gathered. They're listening. They're sitting at Jesus' feet. Good, they get it. And what does Jesus say? He says, why do you question in your hearts? Because externally, they may have been seated there. Seated? Seated? Seated's not a word, right? Somebody back me up on that. Seated's not a word. Seated? Seated? Thank you. They were seated there. Man, don't tell my eighth grade English teacher. That was bad. They were seated there listening to Jesus. They seemed to get it. But in their hearts, they're saying, who is this man that blasphemes? Who is, it? Who is this? He can't say that. He can't do that. And keep in mind, as we've looked at Jesus' life chronologically, we've already covered where Jesus, talking to a crowd of Pharisees, talking to these religious leaders, laid out the five proofs of his equality with God. So they've already gone over this topic. And they're sitting there in their hearts saying, Who, what? No, he's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus looks at them and he perceives this. He knows what's in men's hearts. And he says, why do you question in your hearts? What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or, and then he turns to that. I love that he doesn't even address the Pharisees, right? He's like, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your bed and walk. And he even goes so far, he says, so that you may understand that I have the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to heal this man. Because the Pharisees in their heart, they weren't submitted. There was no reverence. There was still that posture of, yeah, we're here to check you out, but we know better. We're not going to take you at your word. We're not going to take you at what you've already laid out for us. They're questioning in their heart, even though it looks like everything is right. And it makes me think of Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, where, where David is the one who winds up being anointed. And what does God say in Samuel 16, 7? The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so the question that really is very similar to the question we asked last week with the man with leprosy, and now we look at the Pharisees. Church, where's your heart? Where is your heart before the Lord? Externally, are you sitting there listening to God, checking all the boxes? And internally, you're, okay, how long, you know, man, is he going to wrap up soon? Where's your heart? I don't care where you're physically sitting. I care about where your heart is. We need to be willing to ask ourselves, is my heart postured like the man with leprosy, kneeling prostrate before the throne of the God Almighty? Or am I sitting there like a Pharisee, listening but not hearing? Where is our heart? Is it submitted in reverence to Jesus as healer? And then the final part, that question of power and authority, we see Jesus demonstrate it in one move, in one sentence, right? Because they're right. The Pharisees, to a degree, are right. That forgiveness belongs to God and God alone. The Bible's very clear on this. Isaiah 43, 25, I, 
This is God speaking. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Daniel 9.9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Mercy and forgiveness belong to the Lord. Sure, we are called, don't get me wrong, don't, don't twist it, we are called to forgive one another. We can forgive one another. That is a privilege of being able to forgive one another and reflect. Remember, we are made in God's image, so when we forgive one another, we are able to reflect the heart of the Lord in forgiveness. But forgiveness, mercy for sins, that belongs to God. So when the Pharisees say, who is this man that blasphemes? Only God can forgive sins. They're technically right. But Jesus has already demonstrated that he's God. And I love that. I, I, honestly, I kind of think of it as patience here. He's already demonstrated multiple times that I am God. They've gone over this. This has been established over and over again. And what does Jesus say? He says, what's easier? To forgive this man's sins or to tell him to rise and walk? But to show you, he shows patience. He's willing to demonstrate. Look, in case you missed it, and obviously you missed it the first couple of times, to show you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man rises. And what I find so telling and so beautiful about this story, we've talked about God offers restoration. That's the overarching question for this week, right? God offers restoration. How do we respond to it? What's beautiful about this story is what does Jesus start with? Does he start with the temporal restoration or does he start with eternal restoration? They lower this paralyzed man before Jesus, and Jesus sees their faith, and he says, your sins are forgiven. He goes right past the physical. He goes right past the temporary. He goes right to the heart of the matter. He goes to the eternal restoration, because that is ultimately what God's desire is for people. Scripture says the Lord is not slow to act, as we understand slowness, but is showing great patience, desiring that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. God wants eternal restoration of our relationship with Him. That's His focus. That's Jesus' focus. Jesus goes right beyond the paralyzed man to the man's sins, and He forgives him. He goes to the heart of eternal restoration. This past week, I asked you guys to read Isaiah 53 and Matthew 8, 14 through 17 every day. I hope you did so. Because in Isaiah 53 and in Matthew, we see that it begins with eternal restoration. But that in the eternal restoration, as God wills, we are offered temporal restoration. Let's read Isaiah 53, verses 5 and then 11 and 12. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Down to verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. We are accounted righteous because of what Jesus did for us. Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the, transgress the transgressors. Sorry. It begins with the eternal restoration. It's what God offers in Jesus is the righteousness of Christ. And it's not, it's not a split percentage 
when God looks at my beautiful wife, Adeline, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And it's not 90% Jesus, 10% Adeline. It's not 80-20, it's not 60-40, 50-50. It's 100% the righteousness of Christ because it's all about Jesus. She is the best person I know. I, I mean that. She is the best person I know. There is not a single thing she has ever done or could ever do to earn her way into heaven. And if she can't earn her way into heaven, I, I can't earn my way into heaven. You can't earn your way into heaven. The righteousness that we are accounted as is because of Jesus and Jesus alone in the eternal restoration that God makes available to us through the Messiah. And then what's a part of that? Let's go back to Matthew 8, 14 through 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That, I mean, man, that verse in and of itself, right? That'll preach. He healed her and she rose and began to serve him. We could unpack that. That'd be, oh, I should have a pen. I need to make a note on that. Somebody remind me later. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So we begin with the eternal restoration and we see that in that, in God's infinite mercy and grace, he offers as he wills temporal restoration. He offers restoration for the physical in this life, for the burdens and the weights and the trauma that are inflicted on us in the day-to-day -day of this life. But it begins with the eternal restoration in Jesus. And then the temporal restoration is a part of that. We talked about it last week, that this is a reality. It's God's will. It's God's authority. And Jesus demonstrates this to the Pharisees. He shows, look, so you know that I have the authority to offer eternal restoration. I'm going to show you a glimpse of temporary restoration. And he heals this man, and the paralyzed man walks, and he picks up his bed. And as we've talked about, and as I've alluded to, last week I specifically mentioned, this is a doctrine that's it's tricky, it's weighty, it gets deep. There are a lot of different teachings out there on that. And I've had some great conversations over the past week with people asking about, okay, you know, where's the discernment come in? How do we recognize when it's legitimate? What's going on here? How, how do we handle this? And I think the crowd, I think the crowd gives us a, a great example of how to respond to, right? When we look at this idea of responding to God as healer. So you've got men who are entirely focused on Jesus Christ, they bring their friend to Jesus. These men are submitted to Jesus. The Pharisees are not. Jesus heals the man. You have the response of the Pharisees, and then you have the response of the crowd. So as we look at this question of, okay, we relate to and we understand Jesus as healer, how do we, how do we respond to Jesus as healer? I think the crowd gives us a great uh, benchmark, if you will. What's the crowd's response to when this man is healed? Amazement sees them all, and they glorified God. One question we need to always ask ourselves, not just with healing, but with any ministry, is who gets the glory? Who is it about? If the ministry is about a person, if the ministry is, hey, come here, Sam, speak, and he'll teach you how to heal people, you run away from that garbage. But the crowd gets it. They see this man healed, 
And they glorify God. They go right to praising God. And if you back up to the story of the man with leprosy from last week's passage, when Jesus healed him, he said to him, he says, don't tell people. Go and offer a sacrifice in the temple as is fitting. And the man doesn't. He goes and he praises God and he gives testimony to God and the word spreads. So one thing that we need to always be asking ourselves as we interact with this world is who gets the glory? Who is it about? What is the point of all of this? If the point is to lift up people or to lift up a specific group, that's wrong. The point must be to glorify God. It is about His power and His authority. Therefore, it must be for His glory and His glory alone. It must be for His name and His name alone. And the crowd demonstrates this for us. And it's incredible. And so I realize this is quick. I realize two weeks is that's a fast look at Jesus Christ as our healer. But I really think when you look at the man with leprosy and when you look at this paralyzed man, you see the same four truths. You see that it is entirely focused on the person of Jesus Christ. You see that they are properly submitted in reverence to Jesus Christ. We must be submitted in reverence to Jesus Christ in our hearts, not just in our external behavior. You see that it is all about the power of Jesus Christ and that make no mistake, He has the power. If you will, you can. doesn't matter what day of the week it is. doesn't matter what the infirmary is. doesn't matter what the sin is. If you will, you can. Isaiah, He covered up our iniquities. He intercedes for us. He covers for the transgressors. He accounts that we are righteous. He can. He has the power. And ultimately, the authority belongs to Him and Him alone. That it is God's will that we must be submitted to in everything. Last week, I asked the question, do you believe Jesus is healer? And do you believe Jesus is still God even if He doesn't heal? Those are heavy questions for us to wrestle with. But I think we see the appropriate response in the, leper, in the, the man with leprosy and in the, the friends of the paralyzed man in this week's passage. So this coming week, I'd like you to read Acts 4 every day. And if you want to get a little bit more of the backstory of Acts 4, you can go back and read Acts 3. But read Acts 4 every day. And keep in mind these four principles that we've established the past two weeks. As you read through Acts 4, look for, make notes. It's okay to make notes in your Bible. It's my favorite thing to do as I read, is to draw arrows and use different colors. As you read through Acts 4, right, put a little F every time you see the entire focus on Jesus. Put a little F by it. Every time you see that it is about Peter and John and the disciples being submitted to Jesus above all else, they're not submitted to the Pharisees. They're not submitted. I mean, they show up when they're ordered to appear in court. They show up, but they're ultimately submitted to Jesus. Put a little S or put a little R for reverence, for submission. Look through and look and see that the power and the authority, use a P and an A, the power is God's. The authority is God's. Read through Acts 4 every day and ask yourself every time you read it, Lord, could I be described like Peter and John are in this chapter? The same manner in which Peter and John are written about, could that be written about my life? Would these statements about Peter and John, the way these disciples respond, is that true of who I am? And then the prayer is simple. And I provide these prayers in case... Uh, prayer is one of those things, and we're going to talk about it. We're going we're to work on this. 
But prayer is one of those things that for some people is really intimidating. And so we provide just an idea of a prayer in case prayer is something that still seems daunting to you. I don't want it to be. I want prayer to be the engine that drives our individual lives and our, drives our ministry as a whole. But so as you're reading this, as you're asking yourself, the prayer is simple. Lord, teach me to live a life of boldness in declaring who you are. Not a life seeking my own glory, not a life seeking my own fame, not a life about being remembered. But teach me to live a life, I mean like the prayer of the disciples in Acts 4. God, grant to your servants all boldness in declaring who you are. Wherever you work, wherever you hang out, whoever you spend your weekends with, God, Lord, grant me boldness in declaring who you are to point to you. That's what we're going to read, that's what we're going to ask, and that's what we're going to pray, and we're going to do that collectively.